You've heard of BetaShares. You've probably seen the logo on our podcast. You might even be among their 1 million investors. So you can imagine that I'm delighted to say BetaShares is the official ETF partner of the Australian Finance Podcast. With nearly 100 exchange-traded funds, you can go to betashares.com.au and immerse yourself in ETFs and unique insights covering all of the sectors, themes, core and satellite positions you could want. Think cybersecurity through the Hack ETF, robotics and AI with the RBTZ ETF, and uranium with the URNM ETF. The list goes on. To explore the BetaShares ETF range, visit betashares.com.au, read the relevant PDS and TMD on the website, and consider if the fund is right for you. BetaShares Capital Limited is the issuer. Is there a Spotify wrapped for investing? If you want to invest in shares or ETFs, our friends at Perla are more than one step ahead of the curve. On average, people who use Perla invest $1,750 every month. That's what we want to see, proper dollar cost averaging. With automated investing tools making your life simple, Perla investors have well and truly mastered the art of investing small bits lots of times. So if you're ready to start growing your net worth in 2024, follow the link in your Spotify or Apple podcast player right now to discover how you can get started today. Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. Please remember that all of the information in this podcast episode is limited to general information only. That means the information is not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So you should seek the advice of a licensed and trusted financial professional before acting on the information. And before you acquire or apply for a financial product, please read the PDS or product disclosure statement, which should be available on the issuer's website. Lastly, please keep in mind that past performance is not indicative of future performance. Emily Bowen and Shelley Johnson, welcome to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast. Thank you for Thanks. having us. We're no. stoked to be here, Kate. Thanks for having yeah. us. Awesome. And your podcast hosts yourself on the wonderful My Millennial Career Podcast. We are. So we've we've flipped over to the other side now. I think it's the more difficult side being the guest. <laughs> I think it's much easier when we get to be hosts, but we'll see what we can do. Yeah, and no, it is a little bit scary going from, I mean, in my personal experience, going from um, host to guest. So uh, hopefully it is a fun episode. And we're talking all about careers today, which is, I know, a topic people love to talk about, but probably don't have all the resources they need. And it's not something we talk about that much because, I mean, our bread and butter is personal finance. So it's great to get people that are experts in the field working in HR and recruiting, uh, which is not something I have any experience in myself, except some, being someone that's gone through that process before. So it's good to talk to people on the other side of it about how they look at it. And so um, all of our listeners who are potentially job candidates, and I mean, most of us are probably working, um, can get an idea of what to look for when you're going through that process. Well, to kick off, I'd love to talk a bit about resumes. And it's maybe sounds like a bit of a boring topic to start with, but I think most of us um, will have had to put a resume together at some point over the last few years. And for some people, it is just have a set template resume, just send it off without any thought. And maybe once every decade, they update it when they apply for a new job. But 
I'd love to get your approach on what are some of the biggest things that you think people have to explore when it comes to resumes and what are some trends you're seeing that people should be aware of at the moment? I tell you what, Kate, if I followed my own good advice, I would definitely keep my resume up to date, probably annually, just in case I ever needed it, but I absolutely do not do that. So uh, if, if we can give you your first tip, you know, be better than me. Um, I might just talk to the trends part of your question and then let Shell jump in on the rest, because I think what's really interesting is that you're absolutely right. Resumes are a cornerstone to your career and in particular to your job search and when you're active. But what we're seeing is the interaction between resumes and other technology coming into play like LinkedIn. So more and more, the majority of the searching that you're doing or even the looking that a hiring manager or an employer is doing, it starts with LinkedIn. And so something I do do really well and that I would absolutely recommend others do is keep my LinkedIn profile up to date. It's just absolutely a non-negotiable. And even if you're not actively on the hunt, you're still being looked at and you could still have career opportunities opened up for you, whether it's a new role or just something else, an extracurricular, as I like to talk about, or as I like to call them through LinkedIn. And on top of that, the other thing that we're seeing is that so many more opportunities, at least 80% of opportunities out there are coming through what we call the hidden job market. And so that means that those roles are not actually actively or openly advertised on websites like Seek. But instead, it's about the network and the connections that you have behind the scenes and how you leverage those. And the resume, sure, it might get asked for at some point, but it's an afterthought to your relationship with that person who has that opportunity. And I think that's such a good point, Em. Like when most jobs we see in our careers are um, not being, it's not that old school advertising pathway where you jump on Seek, you, you upload your application. Now that certainly happens. And so to those people who, if you're getting asked to put together a resume, let's just talk about what we would want to see on that because we can tell you quickly and Em and I always laugh because we could tell you really easily, what do we not want to see? We don't <laughs> want to see your high school education. The only time we would want to see that is if you've just finished high school. So, if, so keep your, your education levels to the most recent. You don't need to have this huge big backlog of a, well, in, you know, 2005, I finished my HSC and blah, blah, blah. Like, we don't want that. But obviously, that's a very um, kind of baseline level. But some of the things Em and I love is when you see a resume come through and it's easy to follow. So, it's structured in a way that's easy to follow. It's not different bold fonts, all these different things. It's just simple. Simplicity is good because the recruiter or the HR person, what they're doing on their end is they they might look at your resume for max two minutes. Do you reckon two minutes, Em? At best. And that's simply a decision on a first glance, first impression, whether you're going in the no pile or the maybe pile. And if you're in the maybe pile, you've got a chance of getting another look, maybe another minute out of them and it's down the track in the process. And so what we want with that is that your, your resume is really getting you into that maybe pile. So the things that stand out are we want it to be tailored to the business. We don't want it to be generic. So your little blurb about maybe you have this, who am I about me, the same sort of thing you have in LinkedIn will be concise, but connected to whatever that role or the business that you're applying for. Because as the person reviewing applications all the time, we don't like to see generic. We like to see that the candidate has been intentional. And so those are the kinds of things we're looking on resumes 
And, and Em, I don't know if you want to add, what are your thoughts? Look, the final thing I'll add, in, because there are so many great templates on, on Google. So let's try and tell you the things that Google won't. The final thing I'd love to tack on the end there is, particularly if you're in a technical profession, but even if you're not, there's a chance that the first person who's taking that initial look at your resume doesn't actually fully understand what you do. So this is not to downplay their role, but it may be that it's a HR coordinator who is in the first five years of their career and they are responsible for recruiting roles across the whole organisation, which means that they're not the engineering manager who is recruiting that technical specialist, but they're somebody who has some sort of position description or briefing from the engineering manager who has said, can you go and find me this person? And they're doing a first look in the maybe pile and the no pile. And then down the track, soon after that, it becomes, you know, that pile of maybes perhaps sits in front of the engineering manager and that person is actually able to understand, uh, I guess, the technical language or some of that lingo. So I think to the point around making it easy to read, it's not just the format and the way you're presenting the information, but it's also talking to the job in a way that keeps it really simple at a glance and really nails those key points so that anybody reading it can see that you've got to offer what they're looking for. And that sounds, that's a really good point because if you don't think about who's actually going to read that resume, you're not going to write it appropriately. It'd be very different writing a resume to apply at a startup compared to working at Google, one of those massive organizations that have thousands of recruiters. Totally. Yep. Absolutely. Know your audience and write for them. Mm. And one thing I heard was that a lot of recruiters now, because we're most of our resumes are going online, not getting posted or handed over manually. Uh, they'll use keyword searches and things like that to move resumes from the no to the maybe pile. Is that something that happens? Oh, Shell, you jump in. You've worked for a big business, but I'm going to call a little bit of bluff on that and say that it's not something that never happens, but it doesn't happen as frequently as the internet would like us to believe. Um, you know, that fear campaign is certainly out there. I think particularly in Australia, I would put it out there without a lot of science behind it, but call it gut feel and, and a reasonable amount of experience in recruitment. I would suggest that that's not happening as often as you might think, albeit it does still happen. And you know what? For me, that keyword search and the idea of a computer doing it versus, again, without downplaying their role, somebody who's not technically uh, proficient in the role they're recruiting for, it doesn't matter which of those two things are happening, whether it be the computer or the person, you still want to hit on those keywords. So it shouldn't actually change your approach. What I've heard more uh, than that necessarily has been um, AI, like uh, being used to help remove discrimination or bias. And so that I think is something that's such a good thing for us to be pursuing and certainly with the various types of recruitment software we're seeing that come in more and more of how do we help it things like removing names so removing names removing anything that might indicate their age or gender and that's if we see more of that that's excellent because as people we all have our conscious or unconscious bias and so we want to um be able to see that stuff start to shift I guess if we if we talk about that for a little moment one of the things we encourage candidates to do in in our podcast is make sure you're you are conscious of that when you're putting together your resume so don't put things like your age your gender photos different things like that on there to um you know reduce the likelihood that someone's going to discriminate against you 
Yeah, that's a, a good point. I mean, I hadn't thought about putting a photo on a resume, but I, it might be something that people have done. I know I have seen resumes come through with date of births and things like that. And I'm like, that's a lot of personal information to hand over to someone on the internet on the first glance. You get an amazing amount of information from some people. But as far as those trends go, we are moving away from that. I think, you know, many, many years ago, it was more typical to see marital status, religious beliefs and uh, many other things on a resume. It's just not the done thing anymore. And so if that is something that any of your listeners are still doing, uh, we would absolutely recommend that they stop. Um, and look, the, the final thing I would add just on resumes is just around referees. I think some of the advice that Shell and I will give from our experience that can surprise people is actually to leave your referees off your resume unless it's specifically been asked for in the instructions, in which case ignore us. And you'll typically see that in government roles. Uh, the reason for this is in respect to giving away personal information, you actually can lose some control around who your you know, potential new employer, so who that recruiter or that hiring manager is talking to and when they're talking to them, if you put your referee's details on there. The alternative, because it means that they can contact them at any time, the alternative is that if you leave them off, then it means that that recruiter needs to ask for them and you want to have them there ready to send to them immediately. So within that day, you want to say, here you go, and you want to have your referees prepped. The reason why you want to do it that way is so that you can prep your referees, but it's also you can say, you know, you're going to get a call from this company. I expect it to be in this time frame, And here's what I think they're going to ask you about because they've been the key themes of this recruitment process. But what it also does is give you a really strong indicator that you're in a really good position because I guarantee recruiters are not interested in spending time doing reference checks unless you're the top one or potentially top two candidates in that process. So you're really at the pointy end. And it just gives you that indication. Um, I'm not sure what it is for other professions, but reference checking for recruiters is just one of those things that it's like a necessary evil. I don't know why it is, but we just, none of us love it. And yet it's actually quite fun when you get on the phone, but when you're coming into a reference check, it's like, oh, I've got to do a reference check. But it is actually a really important final part of a process. Yeah, and I guess your point about being able to prep your referees is really important. I mean, I've had one of those random phone calls where your friends provided your details on your oh, behalf and you didn't know about it. And you're just trying to think of something um, useful to say when they start asking you questions about a particular role that you you don't really know what you want your friend to tell you what they kind of want you to say, don't you? Such a missed opportunity. And yet it's the final hurdle and it's in someone else's hands. Like you're the one that's trying to get the job. And you've been going through this recruitment process in control of your own actions and behaviors and, and what's coming out of your mouth. And then you're leaving it up to a third party to do that, that check. And the best thing you can do for yourself is actually to prep them. Even just make sure that they're not going to be, you know, on a train and trying to just get it done half-heartedly because they feel like, oh, this is important, but I'm on a train, but I better do it because, you know, that person I know needs me to. Uh, so yeah, there's a ton of good value that can come from just controlling that part of the process by not putting it on your resume up front. Mm, mm, absolutely. And you mentioned before about the, uh, the sort of the shadow job market where there's so many roles that get hired for nowadays that they never end up on Seek or any of those or LinkedIn jobs or any of the other websites. How would listeners go about finding some of these roles and making sure they're in the right networks for these opportunities that they won't find uh, in a simple spot on the internet? 
let me dub you in, Shell. You're a perfect example. You've done this yourself really recently. Yeah, I was just going to say, so um, my, I guess my advice would be view anyone in your network as a potential employer. Because for me, I've just started a new job. Uh, I was working in um, a head of HR role for about seven years and then stepped out of that role into a consulting gig with a client. So when I was working my old job, this person I was interacting with was a client of mine. And so now the kind of dynamic has shifted and I'm working for her and that job purely came out of a network. So her and I are sitting down and I guess just having an informal chat of, hey, would you ever want to come and work with us? Like, yeah, I'd love to. That'd be great. And so we went on this kind of journey, no jobs advertised, no kind of formal um, submit an application. It's that her and I had worked together in a different capacity for, you know, six or seven years. And so that opportunity came about through relationship and through a recognition that all of my interactions, my network beyond just my immediate employer right now, they could be someone that is going to hire me. And so if I have that mindset, what I do is it changes my, the way I interact. I don't see these relationships as transactional. I see them as purposeful and meaningful. And then I look at, okay, can this create an opportunity? And so looking at your network, where are those opportunities? Where can you build relationship for the long-term that could open up doors in the future? What's your thoughts, Em? So I uh, love that story. I think that what I would add to it is we have this real belief, particularly on, uh, you'll hear us talk about a lot on our podcast if you you come over for a listen, and it's this idea of career self-reliance. And if you are purely basing your need or your ability to find a job on what is available in the market at that moment, as in what is available on the open market, so through Seek or LinkedIn, job boards and things like that, then you're actually only looking at about 20% of the available opportunities and you're competing with probably about 80% of the population who's also looking at that job. So it's about flipping that and really taking control and that's this idea of career self-reliance. It's taking control of your own destiny, of your own adventure. Now you still need to do that job search that's more active and it's, it's in the open market. That's absolutely part of it. But if you sort of remove yourself from what everyone else is doing, and Shell's story is just such a beautiful example of it, and you not only think about what's available to me right now, but what might pay off over the long term, you know, it's that six or seven year burn. It didn't necessarily need to take that long, but it was all the things that Shell was doing with intent, with just thinking, you just never know when I might like to lean on this relationship or it might open up an opportunity. All of a sudden, she's totally removed all the competition. No one else applied for that job because it never existed on Seek. And on top of that, interviews are really funny things because we don't actually have to interview in our job every day to be good at it. And yet it's the main judge of whether or not we get a job when we're going through a recruitment process. So what Shell's also been able to do and what we see work time and time again is there's six or seven years of experience that her now employer has had with her where she's proved She's actually really good at this and she's she's an awesome employee. So it's a much easier decision as well. Not only is there no competition, but there's a lot more certainty and a recruitment process for an employer is all about increasing certainty and reducing risk. Mm. And that's 
it's a thing that I think we haven't thought about much that if you take the relationship and long-term approach to your career, jobs come along that you don't even think about. They just come as a complete surprise and they're not going to be asking you for your resume and to do an interview possibly and for all your experience because they've already seen you develop over many years. And so it's, I mean, they can take a much surer bet on you because they know how you work. It's not a surprise. And I guess you you go, Shell, sorry. I guess, Kate, that's that's the interesting thing because I've, I've worked with people who see, like let's take a supplier, for example. They see that supplier as purely transaction. And so they treat them like, I, I pay you to do this job, you do it and, and you deliver. And that, that, you know, yeah, that might be efficient. But if you look at your career in a way of every person I'm interacting with could be an opportunity down the track you start to treat people differently and that's not being manipulative. It's just being respectful, good human. And then knowing that, you know, you may actually have a different relationship with them in the future. And so I guess that's for Em and I, we, we really want to have that long-term mindset of how do you build relationships and how do you create opportunities and options? Yeah. I think that's a really good one for people to take, um, under their wing as they approach their career and thinking long-term as well, long-term investing and long-term career planning. Absolutely. Um, when it comes to say we've, we've found a job that we really want, we've got our resume and our cover letter sorted and potentially we've been offered to do a job interview, though it's probably on Zoom at the moment. Um, what are some of the things that people should do to make sure they they present themselves really well for that interview and put their best foot forward when potentially they're just communicating over a computer screen? The first thing that comes to mind for me is do the best you can to get yourself in the mindset or the headspace of this is just a conversation. And the employer that you're meeting with has a problem that they need solved. And when you're turning up, they are hoping that you are the person to walk through the door and solve their problem. Like that is all that they want. They just want this recruitment process to be over. They want the problem to be solved because they've got the new person in the business doing what they need them to do to get the business where it's trying to go. And on top of that, you've got a problem. You know, that might be a lack of satisfaction in your current role. It might be that you're unemployed or it might be that you're ready for the next thing. And so when you turn up to that interview, you are also looking to have your problem solved and you're really hoping that you're going to vibe with these people and you're going to see that this opportunity is one where you can solve your own problem. So first thing that comes to mind for me is trying to shift away from the power dynamic that is typically associated with an interview and move into one that is about two adults who are really good at what they do, one representing a business, the other being you, who are having a conversation to try and solve each other's problem. And I I always like want to say so good because I love when we're talking <laughs> and I'm like, I agree with everything that you just said. And I guess one of the things that I see people struggle with is this element of preparation. How much do I prepare? How little do I prepare? Like, and they get really nervous about what questions are they going to ask me? Like, and I'm going to get stumped. The recruiter or the interviewer is not trying to stump you. They're trying to gauge the fit. And so what I encourage people to do to prep is think about the biggest achievements you've had in your career. So Kate, for you, your biggest achievements, list them out. The project that you worked on that you absolutely nailed, the thing that you delivered that defied everyone's expectations. 
and start to write those things out, those examples. And then what I do is I actually craft those responses towards questions. So the typical type of questions, tell us about what you've done that an area you've succeeded in. And then I use what I've already prepared and I just kind of craft it to whatever the question is so that I'm actually showcasing the best things that I've done rather than going and preparing for all manner of questions. I kind of think about core things that I've done and achieved and how can I tweak those to fit the interview. And on the only other thing I'd say is in your preparation, you always need to prepare for the tell us a bit about yourself because people rant and rave and go on forever just get really clear on that question you want it to be short and sweet you want it to have a bit about you as a person as well as your profession not just this big long-winded answer and again know your audience so you want to make sure that you have the opportunity to speak to the value that you're going to add the people that are sitting in front of you and you want to make sure that in your preparation while you've been driving around or you're in front of your mirror, whatever you feel more comfortable with, you've practiced that out loud because often what makes sense in our own heads, as soon as it comes out of our mouth, it becomes that ramble or we trip over our words or it actually just doesn't sound that good. And so get over that discomfort in your preparation and do practice that aloud. The final thing I thought you were going to go to, Shell, was actually personality. So we talk about this often. Just let them get to know you as a person. Don't be a robot. Don't over-prepare so much that what you do say comes out too scripted. Shell said it. They're looking for fit. They're looking for vibe. They're looking for, can I turn up and spend more time with you each day than I spend with the people that I live with? And are we going to get along? Are you, you know, Does it make sense for you to just come and hang out here? So let that come through as well. Mm, yeah, so it's a mixture of solving their problem because they do not want to do any more interviews than most people that aren't in recruitment and they're just having to hire as part of their job as a manager in the operations team do not want to do any more interviews. They just want it over and done with. But it also, as you mentioned, like we spend more time with our work friends like pre-COVID um, than we do with our family. So you've just got to be someone that they're happy to hang out with and have a cup of tea with. Yeah, and usually once they've seen your resume and you've made it through to the interview, they've got a pretty good uh, level of confidence that you can do the role. So they'll spend a little bit of time on that, but primarily they want to understand how you'll do it and, as we've just now touched on, what you like. Yeah, and what if what if you're in a point in the interview where they uh, – I've had an experience before where the, in, the hiring person will just you, – you answer your question and they just kind of sit there and stare at you and go and they – is that all? And they just like stare at you to see if you will keep talking or what you're going to do uh, next. Yeah, like if you've got uh, an awkward question like that. That is awkward. I think it is good to have questions up your sleeve because what I would do in that situation, if someone kind of shocked me with a, is that all? And I'm like, what the heck are they, what do they want from me? I would actually put a question back to them of going, that's my perspective, but why is this of interest to you? Or why is it that, it, is this, so say they asked you a question about delivering project time, like delivering a project on time, and then they do that, is that all? If, if it sounds like they're trying to probe on something, really allowing the question going, okay, what is it that is a challenge for you at the moment in this space? And so you're giving yourself time. You're actually buying yourself time to not feel nervous or awkward or thrown. And 
actually the interviewers love getting questions because they're sick of asking people questions. Like they've been sitting in eight, potentially eight interviews and they're like, oh gosh, I don't want to ask someone another question. So putting it back to them would be my strategy. And what do you think though? Oh, I think that would be, um, yeah, that would be uncomfortable, wouldn't it? So I love this idea of it being more of a conversation and by asking questions back and forth, you actually create that vibe of more of a conversation. And this plays into your ability to show off your personality. It plays into that power dynamic that we spoke on and how you can actually suss out. Is this really the place that's going to solve your problem as much as they're sussing out whether you can solve theirs? On top of that, I would also add that you it's like, it's okay. I think this is what you're saying, Shell, but it's okay to actually ask clarifying questions. And so to be able, like, don't be afraid to say, yeah, that's my perspective. That's how I would summarize that. But is there something that you'd like me to dig deeper into and try and actually just ask them to explain what they're getting at. We, um, we actually can experience good and bad interviewers in our job search. Not everyone is good at interviewing. So the other sort of mind trick or trick that our minds can play on us is that we think that everybody who is interviewing is going to be good at it and that they've got the easy job of asking questions. But in reality, you will come across the odd person who is not a good interviewer and that can make life harder. So just being, you know, finding a place to be more comfortable in the conversation is important. And Kate, without having been there, I feel like maybe that person wasn't a good interviewer, uh, but we've got to learn how to roll with it. Mm. Yeah. And there's definitely people that are having to do the job interviews and they don't want to be doing them. So they might just be quite grumpy and it's nothing to do with you. It's, it's to do with them. It's probably a red flag that maybe that's not the place for you, which is part of that cultural piece that you're sussing out as well. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a good thing because you've got to think about you're, you're interviewing them as well because if you're going to be spending like 40 hours a week in this place, you want to make sure it's going to be a comfortable place to work and you're going to be enjoy the people enough. Um, and on the question point before I move on to the next bit, at the end, most people I've spoken to, there'll always be a question. Do you have any questions for us? So do you recommend having a few questions prepared up your sleeve for that point? Yes, you absolutely need. One of my pet hates. Okay. Yeah, now I'll she's warming up. Now, I've been here before. Now she's warming up. I just have to say, I, it, it, I hate it when I'm in an interview and at the end of the interview, we say, Okay, so do you have any questions for us? And they're like, no, I think you've answered it all. Oh, yeah. I haven't answered a single question. I've just listened to you. But also, this is a full-time 40-hour-a-week job for the next five years we've spent an hour together. How have I possibly told you everything? Do you know what? This... the reason it happens, it's not that the person doesn't have questions, it's that they're nervous and they're they're actually quite tired emotionally and they want to get, they want to kind of finish it up. That is a mistake. You need to have questions up your sleeve. You don't need to have an endless list, but some good ones that um, I would encourage you to have is what's, what is it like to work here? Is what's the culture like? What are you, what do you like in your team? So if the hiring manager um, is there, I'd be asking them, what are they like as a leader and what are they like? What types of, um, what, what are they looking for uh, from this person in terms of not so much technical, but like what are they wanting in the role in terms of culture fit? So some of those questions are really helpful. And what questions are, do you like to have? Yeah, look, the way I like to categorise them is 
and you've just nailed this shell it's organizational questions so questions at that org level team questions and then individual role questions and absolutely write down those ones rewind write down those ones Shelley's just rattled off but also make sure that you brainstorm and again Google is your friend but brainstorm a few other questions for each of those categories because there is a chance that the question that you go prepared with will be answered already through the conversation and you just need to make sure that you've got one or two left at the end feel free to write them down so take a notebook have them written down and then at the end I'm totally comfortable when I see people go, yeah, I do have a few questions. Let me just check. I think we've already answered some of them through this conversation. And then they have a look in their notebook and they go, oh, here's one that we haven't talked about. I love that. It says you've spent your personal time before you've turned up here preparing for this. That's how important it is to you. And we haven't made this reference yet, but it's an important one. Recruitment process is like dating. And if you were to turn up to a first or second date and not ask any questions of the person sitting across from you having a drink, then they're going to walk away thinking that person's not real interested in me. They're not keen or they're a bit self-absorbed. I spent my whole time asking them questions and they didn't ask me a single one in return. So either way, it's probably not going to be a match. No, I love that. And even just taking a notebook, sometimes they'll say something in the interview and give you some additional information about the role that you you want to write down I guess there's something about having like a pen and paper that makes you seem very prepared <laughs> definitely yes. awesome well one of the other things I wanted to talk a bit about and I know you both are very keen on this is LinkedIn and how to use this as a more effective tool in our uh, job application and career building process because a lot of um, recruiters now actually reach out to people directly through LinkedIn um, I'm not sure if you guys do that Yeah, it's something that uh, we do as recruiters, which is, uh, I guess, where the world I play in, we do all the time. It's our bread and butter. If we turned up to one of our clients and said that we were going to find them the perfect candidate by posting a job out on Seek, our industry would not exist anymore because they can do that so cheaply and easily themselves. Where the value that we add comes from has to be from finding, you know, turning over those rocks and finding those people that no one else knew existed. And one of the greatest tools for us is LinkedIn. So we're always scouring LinkedIn and increasingly organizations with internal HR teams are doing the same to find great people. And then we're reaching out to them that way. I would uh, think about this as another long-term investment of your time because you might not get approached every day. It depends. There are some professions out there that are in high demand and they're probably thinking, yeah, I do. It gets annoying. And do you know what? If it gets annoying, then that's where the onus is on the recruiter to make sure that they're doing a really good quality approach um, and you will see those stand out and hopefully you'll reply. But to give yourself the greatest chance of being approached so that you don't miss that great opportunity, you want to make sure that you're investing not only in your LinkedIn profile, but also in your personal brand and how you're presenting posts and commenting on other posts and engaging in that community as well. Yeah, I sometimes think people don't make the most of the um, being able to post and put articles and photos and certificates on their LinkedIn feed. I see a lot of maybe older people in my audience doing it, but lots of people uh, in my age, they don't seem to make use of it. And I think that's a, a great tool because it's great. It's fun. You like seeing people's achievements and that they've finished this cool course or they've um, they've gone on this particular project. And I think that's something else to think about, like sharing what you've learned and achieved on your LinkedIn as well. 
Yeah, you can you can really start to create a bit of an audience too, of, and they get the sense of your, as Em mentioned, brand. So what is it that you're passionate about? What is it when it comes to work that drives you and motivates you? And I think giving a recruiter or giving an internal HR team a sense of who you are can then help to work out how do you align and fit with a potential role or business. And so they might see my LinkedIn and say, oh, she seems pretty fun and and authentic in her communication. And that's a bit of our brand and culture. She'd be a good fit for this role. And so you're actually working out how do you align with organizations that maybe you haven't come across yet. So as I mentioned, the profile is really important. And looking at people who are good at this, finding some people out on LinkedIn that do it really well. And then you can kind of like cherry pick things that that you want to include in your own profile, uh, learning from people who are really good on LinkedIn. The other couple of things that are amazing, particularly when you're in a job search mode, are actually having a look at who you're going to be interviewing with and following the company page to see the most recent updates so that you can walk into the interview or you can prepare your application in a way that is as current as possible and is really responsive to them. You've got a sense for when you're sitting at interview you know, what's the career path been of that person that's a key decision maker in that conversation with you? And the other thing, sorry, the other thing that I would encourage all the time on top of that is actually to make sure that you're connecting with as many people as possible who you've met through your career, even people you went to school with, see what they're doing now, because harking back to that hidden job market that we talked on earlier, you just never know when someone in your network is going to be useful to you. And that's like another thing by posting and sharing. They, this person that you haven't spoken to for years because you went to high school, just because they're connected with you, might see the thing you shared and suddenly it sparks a conversation that you just don't know where it could lead. Yeah. And it's weird how you can have these people that you might not have spoken to for five or 10 years. They're a part of your world once upon a time, or you met them one time at a networking event or in a you know, supplier arrangement. And there's this weird sense of it's okay to reach out to them at any time on LinkedIn. Like you can totally just send them a message through LinkedIn and say, hey, it's been a while. Listen, I thought of you because I've got this problem and I'd love your advice or your recommendation or your perspective. And you might not as comfortably pick up the phone to them or you might not even have their number, but it's totally okay on LinkedIn and people are actually quite flattered by it when their brand is recognized and what they're expert for is recognized as well. Mm. It's like picking your platform. It might not be appropriate to message them on Facebook because you haven't seen each other for 10 years, but LinkedIn may be much more appropriate. Totally. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. And the other thing I wanted to talk a bit about was building, in terms of building our digital brand, there's things we want to do proactively to build our brand, but there's also things we want to avoid uh, putting out there because uh, as I guess everyone knows now that your empl- future employer is going to Google you, um, how much, I guess from a recruiting perspective, how much do you Google or stalk people online um, that you might be interviewing or thinking about hiring and how, what would be some of the red flags you'd look for that like listeners should make sure that they're not displaying on any of their online presences? And I jump in because I, I was doing a, a recruitment not that long ago and um, I always Google Google candidates because I, I think I want to see what their online footprint is. And her the person's LinkedIn photo was her with this wine and she was like 
it was her drinking a wine on her LinkedIn profile. I thought, no. Did she work in wine sales? No, <laughs> no, totally different industry. And I was like, why? Like, why? Like, just, just simple stuff sometimes. And that might sound like it's just simple stuff of having a, a semi-professional photo makes a huge difference. Because as I go back to what we we're talking about before of bias and discrimination, that happens. So my initial thoughts were, oh, you don't seem like super professional. And it was for quite a professional role and immediately rule that person out. And that's, you go. Well, the thing is, Shell, you and I both drink wine, right? And oh, yeah, I love a, wine. Yeah, there's a photo out there of us drinking wine. But for me, it's the judgment. It's how I'm perceiving that person's judgment call in regards to if yes. that exact same photo was on Instagram, totally fine. They've got yeah. all their clothes on, no worries. But if that photo, they've made the judgment call to pop that on their LinkedIn as their one headshot on LinkedIn, like you only get one chance. I'm questioning because it's a professional platform and because it does not make sense with the context. If that person was a wine sales rep, then there's context there that says she needs to show up or this person needs to show up and have a brand of I love wine because she's selling wine. But when that's not the case, totally appropriate for Instagram, lots of other photos, social, cool, maybe just not the best. And so you draw those conclusions. And as much as we try and apply science as far as possible and no bias as far as possible recruitment process as I said earlier about solving problems reducing risk but it's also about finding reasons to reduce the candidate pool down to one and unfortunately something like that there's a chance that it's going to be a reason why they're going to reduce you out of that candidate pool because they've got to get there somewhere somehow and there might be someone else who's got exactly the same experience and looks just as qualified but has a, a more fitting headline uh, head like headshot on LinkedIn and I guess like that's an extreme example and most people don't have that right like I've but if your LinkedIn presence or your your like I I would encourage you work on that bio that mm-hmm. bio I jump on I want to read I want to know about you and if you've got you know, a solid bio, then that's an instant thing of, oh, okay, I feel like I know this person. And by the time I get to the interview, I get, I feel like we're actually like someone, instead of just being a complete stranger, there's an acquaintance there, you're more familiar and that creates warmth and it creates a better conversation. And so using all those options and and opportunities to increase your connection to that, that potential interviewer, but also, you know, do whatever you want on Instagram, but maybe consider putting it on private. If yep. you like, I guess that'd be my advice. Yeah. Because to sort of think about, well, this question of how often are we actually Googling? LinkedIn's easy to find, keep it open, be open-minded, um, but keep it appropriate. Instagram, Facebook, those other, uh, I guess, platforms. I'm absolutely looking for you on those, but I can't see much if you, if you make it private. So I think it's really important um, to just whether you're in the job hunt or not, make sure that you've sort of cleaned up your online self and what everyone wants to represent as far as their personal brand is different. So again, there could be a context where having yourself drinking wine in your LinkedIn profile is totally appropriate and it actually is really on brand, but just make sure that it makes sense to the outside world and it's really intentional decision-making. 
I think we need to meet a wine salesman now. Yeah. Someone who has that photo for real. Well, and if you do have it and you are in wine, then amazing. And I would like my brand to be connected to wine in some way in the future. Totally. (laughs) Totally. I know. Um, And to to round up today's conversation, I'd love to hear from both of you what your number one tip for job seekers in this crazy COVID, post-COVID world, depending on where you are right now, um, in 2021 and beyond. Oh, I wouldn't be me if I didn't harp on about career self-reliance. And so that advice comes from a place that is 2021 and beyond specific But if you'd asked me 12 months ago, three years ago, I would have said the same thing. And this idea of career self-reliance is all about you taking ownership of your own career. We talk on our podcast about things like career security over job security, which is tied into this really nicely as well. And it has that long-term mentality and that patience about it. At the end of the day, the person who cares most about your career is you. So treat it as a long game. Treat it as something where you're investing in it daily it may not pay back uh, immediately. You might get some quick wins and you might get some slower wins, but it's totally worth it if you're setting yourself up for success by only relying on yourself and then leveraging everything else around you as well. I think for me, Kate, it's about how do you build those relationships with people? How do you build? I, I think network is a term that sometimes I'm like, I don't, Sometimes I don't know exactly what it means, but I want to build relationships with people that create value for them and value for me. And so how do, how do we see all of our interactions with people in our jobs, in our current employer as potential opportunities going forward? So that would be my encouragement to your listeners today. Mm, I, much, I much prefer the term building relationships because network just, I think it's been overused by now and it just seems like you're just going out and pestering people. Yeah. Does. you're right and it's kind of like what I don't know what what a network is but I know what it means to connect with people and mm. so how do I do that more and create opportunities wonderful well if listeners have enjoyed the conversation today and have become sort of really interested in any of the particular topics I know that you have covered pretty much everything we've spoken about in quite a lot of detail per episode on your own podcast so how can listeners find you guys So we, yeah, we have a podcast called My Millennial Career. We are launching season four mid-October 2021. So depending on when you're listening to this, that could be coming or it could already be there for you to jump on board. But we have a whole raft of of episodes, as you've said, Kate, um, very kindly. We've just about covered everything. But funnily enough, with the world of work, it is actually quite an infinite topic. So we've got plenty of more good content to come. Um, we also have a Facebook group, which Shell, you should give a plug to uh, because we like to get pretty sort of active on there and it's a really great place to find us as well. If you head to My Millennial Money Facebook group, you can join and we have a lot of career chats in there or you can find Em and I on LinkedIn as well. So uh, Shelly Johnson, search us. You won't see me at this point with a wine photo, but maybe in the future, if I get a, you know, career change. You're just going to need to see who's in your network in that industry and really start to I will. Uh, you know, plug to... away at those relationships. I will need to start connecting with those people. I only got yourself to rely on. I'm on LinkedIn as well, uh, Emily Bowen. So if people want a wonderful example of what a LinkedIn profile should look like, both of you are out there for the people to have a look. Totally. Wonderful. Well, thank you both for joining me today on the Australian Finance Podcast. Thank you for having us. 
Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast, where our mission is to improve the financial futures of all Australians. If you'd like to learn more, create a free account at rusk.com.au forward slash account to download free episode workbooks, bonus resources, and take our amazing free personal finance courses. You can also join our online community by following the link in the description. If you enjoyed the show, what we'd love is for you to leave us a snappy review on iTunes. And you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Rask Australia. Kate and I are also on both of those channels. Finally, if you have any feedback, suggestions for episodes or guests to come on the show, or you just have a question for us, shoot us an email at podcast at rask.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth creating journey, but not sure where to put your hard earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.